This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zoopans Markets, where right now through April 27th, get 20% off select goat cheese, or as the French call it, chev. They come in a variety of different flavors and textures from crumbly to creamy, young to mature, both mild and tangy. My favorite, by the way, is a is a goat camembert. It uh, doesn't get much better than that. But uh, if you haven't had goat cheese, uh, you can serve it crumbly. You can spread it on uh, sandwiches. You can put it on flatbreads. You can spread it over crackers and rustic bread. Or you can mix it into pastas, omelets, souffles, or dips. And the best thing about all of this is all these ideas can be found at zoopans.com. Check out uh, a great selection of uh, cheeses, including Laura Chanel, Coming out of the heart of the California wine country, there's Vermont Creamery that also has some great selection. And let's not forget the Chev Tortas. Uh, you've got uh, Chev Torta with fig spread. Uh, you can mix it with the sour cherry spread. Oh, I love to do that with the Zupan's sour cherry spread. Uh, or maybe mix the uh, Chev Torta with the pepper jelly on some crackers or some toast. All of these ideas can be found at Zupan's.com or by stopping by your local Zupan's Markets. Three locations to serve you, West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. It's Zupan's Markets. All right, here it is. Time once again. It's Portland's Food Scene Podcast. It's right at the fork with your host, Chris Angeles from Portland Food Adventures. Well, well, yeah, you're Court Johnson now. I'm Chris Angeles from Portland Food Adventures. You're at the quasi-studios or wherever you might be of kink.fm and alpha media, all that good stuff. So as a matter of fact, we had a little conversation about that changing um, in terms of where alpha media was. We had some really nice studio space downtown where we recorded the podcast for many years until... The shit hit the fan last year. Yep. It was a little over a year ago. We, we recorded. I'm actually in that studio now. I, I, I've come back to our, our old stomping grounds. Chris, that's where I'm uh, talking oh. to you today. Yep. I can I can just close my eyes and pretend you're sitting like three feet away from me uh, or maybe six feet because we got a social distance still. But uh, I can pretend you're right there. Well, good. I would be getting my second vaccine today. So I will right after... We're done. I'm on my way to Safeway, the glamorous Safeway to get this thing that we've been waiting for. So, um, so I will be vaccinated um, completely. I guess I don't know. I don't know 100 percent how to feel about that, but I'm glad I am. Oh, I got to I, I got to so, uh, tell you, Chris. I got the uh, I got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. You know, right right before they stopped. Oh, hand- yeah, right before they stopped. Appropriately hand- so. Yeah, right before they stopped handing it out. Um, but over, and I'm, I'm about two weeks in, but I, I gotta tell you, there's this kind of this sense of relief that's kind of just settled. And I didn't anticipate this at all, but just the sense of just kind of like, oh man, like, okay. Like I, I, I should be there to the point where, you know, being able to hang out with family, other family uh, members that have been vaccinated in a more casual manner. uh, it, It, it feels good. I know we still have a long way to go. More people need to get vaccinated, but right. uh, it, it it was kind of weird, this sense of, of comfort kind of kicking in and just kind of like, all right, cool. I mean, but, but you know what? If if I had to yeah. get a shot, if I had to get a shot every Friday for us to just hang out and be normal, I'd get a shot every Friday. I don't care. Just give me, just shoot me up. <laughs> well, then we ask what it is that you want to get shot up with. Oh, sure. So, yeah. um, 
But yeah, you're you're speaking of vaccine, but I find it interesting that, of course, you, Court Johnson, got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, and I assume that you're okay with the point zero 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 six five percent chance that you might get a blood clot. Yeah, no, I I, I mean, I, there's risks with anything, but I, I I think somebody said it best on on Twitter shortly after this that, that you have a a better chance of being struck by struck by lightning while being eaten by a shark than to actually have any you know bad things happen to you from from a vaccine so um i'll I'll take that risk that's good to hear that's interesting because i've been doing zoom chats with some of my best friends from junior high school of all things and they've been really fun um you know from all over the country actually all over also canada as well and uh one of our classmates was actually struck by lightning and killed. And he had had a dream about that right beforehand. So oh, wow. D- just, be, just be careful of your dreams. Wake yourself up. Okay. So, th- um, th- thank you for that warning. I'll, I'll uh, try, <laughs> try to avoid that. Yeah, speaking of lightning striking, of course, since last year's coronavirus, we've had so much happen in our Portland food world. We've been getting um, a flurry of bad news with regard to closings and Portland restaurants. And now I don't think I can become any sadder than hearing from my good friend Jose Chesa yesterday that uh, Atala is going to be closing. Um, that's heartbreaking, especially after the news that um, a lot of restaurants in Barcelona clo- are closing. He's following suit. Um, there's an article in Portland Monthly today, which is the 22nd of April, covering this. I didn't want to violate his privacy. There's some, obviously the restaurant is, uh, has some challenges, but there's also some family health issues that are preventing Atawa from moving forward and testing the waters with unsure, uh, temperatures as we go forward. So there closing and that's really really sad to hear and um i'm sure we'll hear more from jose soon it's a private family matter too and um i would rather wait to announce what uh what might be in the offing for them so um again that's about as sad as it gets as many listeners know jose and i are good friends we've taken Trips to Barcelona five times together and all over Spain with his father. So um, I'm particularly sad about that. And then, of course, there's the news about um, from the roadhouses about Notaguro and Tanari lost their leases from Elena Roadhouse's Facebook post a few days ago and uh, wasn't clear whether they're leaving town or not to start over. But either way, it's a very sad day. So, um, you know, every week brings more sad news and every once in a while a little hope. And then we back up with uh, shutting restaurants down to 25 percent. The more that happens, the longer that gets drawn out through um, a period which is usually starting to be higher revenues for restaurants in Portland and anywhere else, the harder it's going to be for these people to sustain themselves uh, going forward. So wishing our restaurant friends um, Godspeed and uh, hope they can get through. That being said, this week's episode, we thought we would rerun an interview we did with Corey Schreiber, 
back in December, um, where he talks about what he thinks the future of the Portland food world might look like, uh, how food delivery systems and packaging might work. And that's relevant because Corey, as some people know, was um, one of the uh, originators of the Portland food scene as we know it, insofar as he was the head chef and owner of Wildwood Restaurant, which spawned so many of our the people in the food world um, who are now sort of in another generation, even so. So Corey's another generation removed from the food scene. And um, we thought it'd be interesting to recheck in with him for anybody who may not have been listening in December, or I think it's a strong enough interview for someone to listen to again, if they've heard it already. But uh, so Corey Schreiber is uh, one of the people we respect a lot. He now, what I failed to mention is he now works for Cisco systems, doing some consulting for them. So given the investment that Cisco has, in the food world. And of course, we pointed out before, I think it's kind of an odd, when I, when I heard that Corey Schreiber was working for Cisco, that seemed to be at odds with the uh, perception I had of him. But what he's trying to do is integrate what, he, what he's all about and what he was all about at Wildwood into Cisco's uh, mindset, which is kind of a big undertaking. Yeah, But uh, it's all noble and... Um, and I think that uh, this podcast is especially uh, appropriate right now that we're, we feel like we might be coming out of the pandemic into some degree of normalcy. But as you said, you know, we, we're not really sure yet whether we're going to feel normal. It's just like one step forward and two steps back and two steps forward. So one of my favorite people in this food world, and I'm so glad he's also a listener. So maybe we test this by not even telling him we're running this again. So I can see if he writes us and says, hey. So to all our listeners out there, hey. Right at the Fork is supported by Zupan's Markets. Whether you're an expert chef or a connoisseur of great cuisine, Zupan's Markets has been the number one destination for the food and wine lovers of Portland and beyond for over 40 years. West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego, or Zupan's.com. Ringside Steakhouse. It's time again to slice into the best steaks and service available in Portland. Seating is now available by reservation only for indoor and outdoor dining at ringsidesteakhouse.com. And check out the newly opened New England-style fish and ship spot with a Northwest personality, Rock Paper Fish, a partnership between the Peterson family and Portland icon Micah Camden in the old Boxer Ramen space on East Burnside for takeout only. And by Portland Food Adventures, Cabin Fever, book a fantastic culinary vacation in 2021 with podcast host Chris Angeles. Experience the best of Basque Country with Javier Canteras of Urdaneta or Western Sicily with Taste of Italy's Austri Enzyme. Whet your appetite and get more information at portlandfoodadventures.com or contact Red at the Fork host Chris Angeles for more details. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad I know. I happen to see you logged in, so um, do you find this all pretty strange? You know, I'm I'm adapting. I, I was just talking to somebody. I I'm getting better in larger meetings to kind of speak my mind a little bit. It's taken me a while to 
you know, find my footing in terms of how, what's the etiquette? How do I, you know, how do I not just sit there and become a, you know, clapping along with the audience, agreeing with everything and really kind of find points to, you know, break it down a little bit. <laughs> and so I, you know, I, no, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that it's kind of an art that we have to learn and it's not going to go away. Yeah, no, that's true. I'm just not, um, I guess it's easy. I mean, it saves gas and uh, to get to places. And uh, I don't know, I'm just, I haven't, I haven't had the occasion to be in with a lot of people. It's always one-on-one -on -one for me. Right. I was going to say, and you're somebody who seems to be pretty comfortable with yourself. So you're, fine to kind of have this monologue slash dialogue where'd you get um, that impression that i'm comfortable with myself uh, well you wouldn't be doing this if you weren't i don't I, think <laughs> i guess no but i have some insecurity you know i i used yeah, I to do. listen to the podcast when we first started it and it was very hard for me to do but now now i can handle it so um but now i'm bringing you kind of into my home i like the studio but this, this is my studio now. How do I sound, by the way? This is a new webcam that I have. You you sound like you sound when you do the podcast and I listen to it. Okay, good. So well, I'm very glad so you I'm glad you listened to it. It was um, flattering to me when you first wrote and said you were a listener because, as I said last time you were on, we hadn't yet met, and I'd always heard about you, and you were this mysterious guy who, you know, ran and was a chef at Wildwood for years and I heard about you so many times and then I didn't know where you were and out of the blue comes this email from Corey Schreiber. Well I think that you're you know I think the show does a great job with kind of telling the inside stories and getting into the minds of the people in the food industry but I also think I look at it as an industry show too and that's when when you and I were talking the other day I thought you know, is there a little room to just kind of talk about the industry and what has happened and what's going on and what it might look like when we roll into the fabulous year of 2021? Or even 2022 and beyond. <laughs> Let's hope that yeah. exists. <laughs> Let's hope that exists. Um, but yeah, so, and you have an interesting perspective because uh, obviously having, um, Run a restaurant that restaurant that not, no restaurant looks like the one that you ran any longer, and it and it won't. So uh, having done that, but now working with Cisco and consulting with restaurants, you have a pretty good. I would I would think that your um, outlook and you know your impressions of the industry right now are some that we would all want to hear about, and um, those folks that. Um, that you contact um, probably want to hear what you have to say and what Cisco's got coming down the pike as well. Well, and, and, I, and as you mentioned, Chris, and it's very true, my heart is always with the operators. I, I think that that is written so hardwired into my DNA that I can't get away with it. And actually, you know, last week when we had the orders again, I just kind of thought I was going to be sobbing in the corner because I just feel for uh, you know, the team here in the Northwest so much. Uh, but yeah, my role with Cisco is now a, a culinary specialist. And we have a team of three here in Portland with two chefs and one uh, protein specialist. And we really are in the field talking to our customers and customers to be and just really keeping a, a hand on the pulse of this kind of incredible time and what it means to them. And more importantly, how can we help lead 
us back into a, kind of a fruitful plane, if you will. <laughs> I feel like we're in the weeds, we're in the forest now. Mm-hmm. How do we get? How do we get out? So yeah, we do that. And I miss, you know, I'm not in the kitchen as much. I really miss dialogue with customers and cooking and recipe testing and product testing and talking about new menu items, writing new menus. We're not doing as much as that. So this is more of a, uh, you know, kind of a uh, in the field, if you will, kind of. A, talking to, to operators so that's why i thought it was interesting because i am actually more than i was a year ago out you know looking at people in their restaurants and having them you know it's we're a little bit of deer in the headlight you know because we don't know where this is going to go but uh yeah it gives me it gives me a perspective there's no doubt about it well what do you think um so we're now on a second shutdown so now at least there has been some experience with what to do when you can't serve people in your rest inside the restaurant, when the majority of your business is takeout. I'm sure there's, well, we know there's definitely some menu paring down when that happens. Um, so do you think that uh, while some restaurants have closed, those that have stayed open are starting to figure out ways to, to, either stay afloat or as when they open up again, maybe start to be, to make a profit. What, what, what mode are they in right now? Most restaurants. You know, it's a great question. And I actually brought it up in a team meeting today too. And I put it into three categories. I mean, there's the, there's three layers possibly for where the people that adapted eight months ago and said, okay, we're going to go, we're going to pivot. We're going to do to go foods. Uh, we're going to figure out how to do a little bit of retail. We're going to think about how to do cold packs and get them into packages to go and then there are are the people that we kind of refer to as the duck and cover let's let's pretend this isn't happening and uh, let's take cover and kind of wait it out and hopefully there's some finance to support that as they go uh, whether it's coming from the state level or the the federal level Uh, and they're kind of a wait and see so we'll kind of do a little bit and we'll watch our you know revenues will start to plummet and we're going to have problems paying the rent and keeping our employees and then there's the third tier where everybody doesn't want to do anything. And they kind of get into this frozen pattern, which I think a lot of the smaller, you know, we sometimes call the mom and pop restaurants and so on too, are the ones that are having the hardest, uh, hardest time. And then, then there's the inspiration, which is the people that have opened after the pandemic. And those are the ones that I think are really kind of leading the way. But, uh, you know, most people agreed, but there are different, we like human beings, we have different responses to different emergencies. And that's what I've seen, you know, I was, I was thinking the other day, and you let me know if you think there's any sanity in this, but food carts, in a way, were kind of the foreshadowing indicator of these, the sign of how consumers were looking at food, meaning that they were shrunken model, they dealt with the real estate issue, because they just shrunk it down and paid these kind of baseline fees. They dealt with the inventory issue by shrinking the inventory down. They only, they specialized in three to five items, they minimized the labor, because you can only put two or three people in a food cart. And I thought that was, that's an interesting way to look back, that that was a model that kind of is pulling out the key factors of survival right now. I'm not just saying food carts. I mean, you can do this in a brick and mortar situation, obviously, but those are the accordion issues that got squeezed back down again. Am I correct? Right, but in, the, in the brick and mortar <laughs> situation, one of the key factors that has been in at least in place a little bit that is, we don't know where that's going is, you know, um, staffing and a restaurant that has, 10, 15, 20 employees that has the ability to furlough them and they can still get paid and survive. 
that's one thing. But when this all ends in the next month or so, because we don't know where, you know, we don't know politically what's going to happen. But that makes it even tougher because I think a lot of operators felt like, well, we can pare it down and we can keep some people, um, you know, they can stay above water by collecting unemployment. But when that goes away, the responsibility and the love is going to fall back to employers and they're not going to have the revenue to support that. So as far as I can see, it's going to become more difficult depending on what happens. And, uh, and it's also very hard to plan when, you know, all we know right now is December 26th that runs out for a lot of people. Um, we're hoping that changes, but. Yeah. Well, and you, you and I both, Chris, have, have talked to our comrades in the industry and we've had some people kind of departed, you know, my conversations with David Machado, uh, my dear friend, Vitaly Paley and, what had to kind of be disassembled, at least downtown, but keeping his flagship restaurant. And I, I think some of those chefs, you know, and, and Mr. Ricker too, uh, in those empires, you know, that were part of my generation, um, they would say that the holes, you know, were already in the business. I mean, some of these things that were foreshadowed or kind of hit the wall pretty hard with the pandemic. When you talk about real estate, you talk about a fixed minimum wage that we know people didn't always receive, you know, in, in the most positive way, they felt that it was mandated. I mean, I think that a lot of the issues that were in food service with the labor, with the rent, with the cost of food, the operationals, the liabilities, they were all riddled into it. I think this pandemic kind of like brought them right up to the surface. And now from an operational standpoint, how do we look at those things? And I think to your, the point you just made too, what, what do we do with that labor? Can we now produce or can an operator produce that 1.7 million dollars a year they need to do in gross with now maybe 30 percent less employees than they used to do it with i mean this is part of what they're faced with on the labor side of it i mean efficiencies inventory shrunken menus and even to your point on the real estate will chefs start to cohabitate in kitchens i'm going to run the ghost kitchen for lunch you run the ghost kitchen ghost kitchen for dinner i mean what what, what kind of creative things will come out of uh, shared space you know? Well, we saw that with pop-ups, you know, that started a few years ago. And, and that was foreshadowing um, what was to come. And you see spaces like Dane that have handled that really well. They have, you know, one chef there a couple of days a week and another one a couple of days and they're establishing themselves. But um, yeah, the real estate situation is going to be crazy because to uh, take, uh, you know, not necessarily the hotel restaurants because someone can go in there when hotels open up again, when and if. Um, but some of those really, you know, established restaurants that have closed, who's going to do better in those in those spaces and pay good rent than the restaurant that was already there that already had a following? So. And that's the exterior infrastructure that I think we might have, we as an industry, and I'll say this very carefully, that maybe we took for granted in terms of the entertainment, the theater, the sports, the downtown activities. I mean, PDX alone, the airport, the amount of traffic that was coming through there and strictly for you know food and drink and the gastronomic destination of Portland, Oregon, that we all worked very hard in the last 25, 30 years to build that up. I mean, what, what makes it, and keeps that appeal going. And then again, to your point, when you've lost that precious infrastructure downtown that causes the going out and the dining and the anniversaries and the weddings and the birth and all that stuff, 
how do we rebuild that? Because that's that is seventy percent of what feeds the the business is this infrastructure that we uh, we need to reconsider, especially uh, downtown. I thought today it was announced uh, Naomi Pomeroy is doing her new concept uh, that she launched called Ripe Cooperative, which she does kind of sophisticated meals that are packaged and they come with tutorial videos to educate people about the final preparations. And they come, you know, you can do a meat one or you can do a vegetarian one. But I thought that was, you know, that was a sign of kind of combining these retail packs with farm goods, with to-go. And that leaves the restaurant to sit there and then eventually she can open it up again. And maybe this is just another arm that grows itself outside of the business. Um, so we're seeing, when we talk about collaboration uh, and chefs getting together, and we talk about Naomi, who has a wonderful reputation, kind of stepping out of the box a little bit and trying something completely different, driven by the pandemic. You know, I think that's that's impressive. Uh, the other thing, did you ever see one of the, the Pixomatic vending machines? Where Cheryl from Pix. Oh uh, yeah, I've, I've, <laughs> I've enjoyed something from there as well. So. Have you? Did you? Did you enjoy it? Uh, yeah, I can't say I didn't enjoy it, but I, we had a couple of technical glitches with with the with the Pixomatic Excel itself. But you expect that it worked eventually. Um, yeah, it was fine, but I haven't seen it catch on. I mean, they're the only ones doing it that I know of. I know we'd have to we'd have to go to Asia to see that in full motion, right? We'd have to go to Japan or something. That we'd see oh yeah, or Amsterdam too. They have a lot of them as well. Yeah, I mean I've watched friends like my friends uh, Julie Richardson and Matt Kapler over at Baker and Spice in Hillsdale just kind of just shut the interior down. It's employees only, and everything is packaged and called in in advance, and it's a survivable model. I mean, I mean she's not going to tell you that it hasn't been without great pain. That they've made the adaptations, but I think. Um, that is, you know, that's also like all of a sudden we don't need the real estate. How many restaurants have you walked into and had has seen the dining room actually became a storeroom? I mean, the saran wrap, the aluminum foil, the, yeah. all the cups, all the to-go containers are just in the dining room. So that has an impact in terms of when owners are looking at really real estate going, what do I do with this and how do I make money out of it? And we, we know it's certainly like in the, in the Latin corridor, we've heard of restaurants in the Willamette Valley that are doing higher volume now. They're like, I don't want to open my dining room again because I'm doing this with a third of the amount of employees. My revenue is up by 20%. I don't have all the dishes to wash. It's a much more efficient model. And so we're seeing some people lean uh, in that direction. I wonder how it's going to do. We're seeing quite a few cooperative, cooperatives uh, op open up, you know, a few Italian uh, cooperativa and uh, some others as well. So, um, you know, you and I discussed this the other day. I still, the food is the food and it's great. And I'm really glad to enjoy it. However, for me, uh, what I enjoy most is the experience of sitting with people and breaking bread over a meal and you know, the service is important because it's nice to be able to sit down and have someone take your order and then not have to deal with dishes. And as I said the other day, if I never have another meal out of a, you, you probably know the name of it better than I do, <laughs> that, that box that opened, that secures on the top and then doesn't secure, it just opens up. And um, if I never have a meal out of one of those again, I'll be happy. But I, I'd like to see new packaging. For instance, Don Salomon, who has, uh, who was doing his um, 
uh, Stevens Italiano for a while. And I'm sure others do this too, but I've only had so many experiences with, with takeout in Portland. But um, his, his whole meal was served in these the great containers that secured and they stacked really nicely in a bag. And when you got back, you, can, you could heat your item in that container and then later use that container afterwards. To me, that was a big step in the right direction because I just, and you know, you, if you get, I like to order enough so that it's more than one night that I'm getting out of it. And then you're storing in this not very secure tight box in the refrigerator afterwards. There's so much that is unappealing to me. I'm not like everybody, but man, I just miss being able to go in and sit down with someone and have a meal. And that to me, the social aspect is 80, 90% of it. Sure, the food's good, but I'd rather, way rather have that food sitting down with you and breaking bread. That was a long so you, dissertation are you, are you, there. <laughs> are you telling me that, are you telling me come April when you go sit down in a restaurant and you have your seat and you made your reservation and they bring your food in a box that you're going to be disappointed? <laughs> well... Yeah, I don't I don't know what to think anymore. I'm uncomfortable with with the whole with everything on how to do it. I mean, I have I know how to deal with this now, go pick up take up have food, but the few times where I was able to go into a restaurant, it's all still uncomfortable. Um and I, you know, on a larger scale, I'm really tired of making COVID decisions on whether to go here and do this or did this affect me and can I get together this weekend with my girlfriend because of oops what did I just do I talked to talk to someone for a, a few minutes so well yeah I, I uh, it'll be interesting you know when operators start looking at the cost factors of like well, no seriously about the china glass and the silver we know that's part of the experience you and I both crave that it's part of our lives but at the same time, I wonder if some operators, it, it's going to cause a little bit of a, a twist in the, if you will, the, the lock key, you know, on the safe. They're going to say, wait a minute, these percentages and this cost that I put into these things that break, you know, I don't know. I, I think that the savvy operators are going to have a very different view of where they begin to crunch uh, the numbers. And I'm just joking about the whole, you sit down, make a reservation and they serve your food in the brown box. I know that that's not going to be okay, but I, I bring it up as a point where I think that, uh, you know, operators are going to look at things a little bit differently, especially the labor. You, know, you and I were talking the other day and I was, and I was kind of going through my head thinking about, wait a minute, we, we as a culture now have gotten used to spending $25 for a pizza, maybe more than that. We've I'll be on the West Coast, my friend. On the East Coast, <laughs> you, can still get, you can still get a pizza for $12 on the East okay, Coast, maybe 15 for my first vacation to be to the East Coast. But, you know, a $16 hamburger, a $20 fish and chips with halibut, a $15 basket of fried chicken. I mean, in some ways, we've been conditioned, uh, you know, to get these baseline items in the so-called American cuisine category, and we'll, we'll pay a premium for them. And I think that that's a manifestation, too. And I only bring that up because you will see operators shrink their inventories down. They'll see that, you know, when I started in kitchens, the food cost percentage, you know, could be at 32%. So that meant for every dollar I got for a plate of food, I spent 32 cents to get it on there. That's gone down to like 26%. I think after this, operators are going to operate on a 22, 23% margin. And the successful ones are already there. But that means squeezing inventory down, making the menu tighter, and maybe even fixing the amount that you make every day, and then you go for broke. You want to be out and done at the end of the day. We're not going to hold 
$3,000 worth of produce in the walk-in. And that's going to be an operational change. Well, that's the food cart uh, model. You know, I'm out, and, I'm out <laughs> and we just close, whether we tell you or not. So, Well, that, that's why I brought that up as an example. Uh, you know, the food cart's kind of foreshadowing what it was we had to do uh, with, the, uh, with, the, with the industry, for sure. So I, I bring those up. And I know that you brought up the $25 loaf of bread. So I think it's going to lead you on on that one there. Oh, we're going to discuss that. I did have a $25 loaf of bread this weekend. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you and I discussed that on a more practical level rather than kind of, it's kind of a humorous thing. And that's where we are. But that, you know, that is maybe where we need to be. I've heard operators say for years that, you know, we really need to be charging $26 for that hamburger, but we can't. And we have to figure out a way around that. But that, but in order to get that burger on the plate, that's really what it costs uh, or a loaf so, of bread. So, so that, that, that to me is a big part of this equation. You know, in this discussion, and I think and, and, and these are the things we really, I mean, what I need to do in my work is really help people get to that point. We know in this country that the cost of food has been pretty much squished down. We have this weird expectation that, you know, food is not that expensive in these levels of, you know, single fixed, you know, in, in smaller inventories, pizza, hamburger, fish and chips, this kind of stuff. I, I don't know, is, is this an opportunity for the food service industry to say, hey, no, wait a minute, let's go back and look at the business equation again. And let me tell you, I can't work, you know, 65, 70 hours a week for a 2% margin. I need to be respected like anybody else in other businesses. And I do need that 10% margin that did exist in restaurants for a long time. And anybody you've talked to has watched it just kind of go down, 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 down. And not out of their, not out of their lack of professionalism, their lack of operational skill, or their lack of anything. The cost of, that's why I brought up the $25 loaf of bread, because I think it's, a, it's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. How, do we conv- how do we as chefs you know, convey to people that this is the cost of food if you want it in this quality caliber? I think that's, that is the hardest. Well, uh, the, the communication uh, challenge is one thing that you can just say it, but whether people can swallow that and then afford it, you know, we're coming out of this pandemic where, you know, a lot of people don't have as much disposable income. So are you going to create a further divide between the haves and the have nots uh, or the, or the have not too much is um, in dining? So are the only people that are going to be able to afford fine dining, uh, people who make over $200,000 a year, then restaurants can't survive on that either. They have to be able to serve uh, a, a, little more, a little bit more of a mass audience, right? I mean, there's a balance there. So you can't just say, okay, well, this burger is going to be 25 bucks. That's what it costs. Well, you're not going to sell many burgers. Well, I heard it was a record Cyber Monday today. So I'm, and they say there's a lot of disposable income out there and people are buying trinkets and things like that on a kind of a crazy level. And that's, you know, that's a side point. But I, I do, I know, I, I, I say that in terms of like just knowing the industry and wanting the honest honesty, but I agree with you. It's very hard to communicate and convey that point about the true cost uh, of doing business. And that's why I think I'm trying to thread all this together to say that I think, and I keep using that food cart analogy, and I mean that on a very broad basis in terms of shrinking the operational risks involved with running a restaurant. Because I said there's a there's a hundred holes in a restaurant. Uh, is that can we bring that down? And maybe they have to work for it. 
you know, maybe it isn't a $25 burger, maybe it's still a $16 burger, but other things have been taken away that make it operationally sound to have the margins that they deserve. I don't know. I mean, and I know it's a, I'm a, that may be a little bit too much uh, somewhere over the rainbow <laughs> type discussion, but, but well, I, I, I want that for the operators. Well, look at the way that taking away tipping, no tipping worked in Portland. I mean, it seems to work. <laughs> ironically, it seems to work in Europe, but they're, they're kind of adopting an American attitude and saying, yeah, no, no, you're, you should be leaving a tip now, 5% in Europe. But I mean, it was tried by some of the some of our best restaurants in Portland, and they could not make it. They could not make someone understand. Listen, it's going to be about the same thing. We're just packing it on on the front end, but this model just helps us to survive. And people didn't care, and <laughs> they did, it didn't work. So right. I just don't think it's that easy. So it's everything is. I've never seen an industry where things are so challenging other than like the music industry had to refigure everything out. And now, you know, now you pay for it at concerts instead of <laughs> with records. That's, that's how they're making their money. So how do restaurants do that same thing? Well, and we're seeing a little bit of that with chefs doing Zoom cooking classes and charging $25 for it. There's a way to make revenue and, not, and, and make one meal. Well, that, that kind of leads me to that when you, I mean, the chef's charging for, you know, the visual or the tutorial or whatever it might be. And you and I spoke about this a little bit too, that we did, we've lost now three culinary schools uh, in Portland. You know, at one point, uh, seven or eight years ago, we had three, Le Cordon Bleu, the Art Institute, where I spent a little bit of time. And of course, the Oregon Culinary Institute. Um, where does this labor come from? Because I'm thinking back to these meaningful conversations with operators that say, we train all of our own people. We start them in the dish pit, we take them into the prep situation, and then within you know five or six years, they may or may not be the sous chef or whatever it might be. And so chefs took great pride in having their own domains with their own educational programs. And schools played into that, obviously. But how do we, how will, how will they perceive the labor now when they're not going to have the formal education, quote unquote, formal education, uh, to bring people into it? Who's going to fill these precious positions, even if there are less of them, I wonder? Because that's a big part of the, the, the cost equation. And I'm not saying you can, you know, you obviously can't change it unless you salary everybody, but that's a whole different uh, a discussion. So I also think that that's something the industry will be trying to figure out. There's no great solid answer for that. But, you know, what what is the labor market to support the food industry and, and will it look different in two years or thereabouts? Well, it's going to look different. I would think, you know, it's not going to look the same as it did. And, you know, my understanding is that the labor market was a real challenge for operators anyway, to find yeah, enough talent to cook. Um, so now maybe it's been answered by natural selection and that they're not going to, they're just not going to have as many customers and they're not going to need to do as much. I don't know. But it was it was challenging as it as it was, and now, um, yeah, now it's going to be even more up in the air. And it's really hard to plan. No one knows exactly what it looked like. It's not like here's the handbook on your 2022 operation. Here's how it's going to work. Here's what you're going. Here are your goals. What you're going to have to get to. You don't know. It's all working as one goes so well i mean speaking from the standpoint of kind of like the spoiled little chef brat you know who came up during the prime time of 
food industry, food industry and was able to kind of do it on my own and open my own restaurant and, you know, gain some of the media exposure that went along with it, all the great opportunities that went along with trying to make the restaurants viable and, and develop the platform that had high visibility. I wonder if some of that visibility and even desirability of wanting to be the so-called celebrity chef or whatever it is might dissipate a little bit with this, you know, maybe the kind of the glory days of the of the chefs, and there are many, many, many names that go along with that have kind of been dismantled a little bit. And, and maybe the reality of this industry, meaning that that's only a half a percent that ever makes it to that tier, the rest of us, you know, are just kind of uh, tinkering away in the long hours and the grief and the sweat and the dirty dishes and all that. So I wonder if the industry is going to lose a little bit of its kind of uh, what I, you know, you, I talked about on the last time we talked, the you know misconception of the industry. Is it going to get more real now? Like, this is it. This is a trade. No glory, <laughs> no guts. I mean, I, I, that's the one thing I'm kind of curious about. If, if, the, sh if the shine has come off uh, of the culinary side of it a little bit in terms of the glory, not, not the actual trade and the work and the craft that chefs will be doing for eons, right? Right. But I guess there's le a little less glory automatically when you have so few employees that you have to go in and do everything all of a sudden. So um you mean there's a little less glory when you just put food into a brown box <laughs> yeah exactly or when you have to be there at all times because that's the only way you can operate your restaurant is to be the, the one cooking when you may not have done it for the last five years you may have just been more of a manager so um i mean i'm seeing that i'm seeing quite a bit of that i think um yes, I, I drove by Kalman guy today and saw i saw the founder in there and the, working the cash register there she was you know that was that was impressive. That was impressive. Yeah, I think she's she's often done that. I stopped in uh, two places for th on Thanksgiving to pick up two parts of my Thanksgiving meal, and you know, there's Jose Chesa making a wonderful, by the way, Thanksgiving meal at at Masia, and then uh, over at Ordinetta, and they're they're doing it. But those guys have always been in the kitchen anyway. It's not as though they haven't been cooking, but but they're handing you something in a kit now. And that's what I found kind of interesting is how nicely the kit is put together and the narrative that goes with the kit and this little stickers that make it look good. Thought is starting to go into those kind of things. You can't just hand someone a brown box. It's gotta look good. There's gotta be a nice package to it. It reflects on the restaurant. So resources are being put into the presentation for takeout, which I've never seen before. And then you and I discussed it the other day. You asked um, if I'd be willing to pay a little more for a nice package uh, as opposed to a brand box. And I said, absolutely. If I'm picking up something for $30 and someone says, would you like the premium packaging? I'll take, I'll pay another couple of bucks for that. So that it's not fall. I mean, I had a beautiful burrata salad fall in the back of my car right onto, you know, stuff that was in the back of my car because of these boxes. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought that back up because I, I do feel when I do talk to our customers about that, I do think that that is here to stay in terms of uh, even if it's $2 more. I mean, you call it premium packaging or call it thermodynamic or tested by NASA astronauts or whatever <laughs> type packaging that's, you know, it's going to insulate. It's going to hold the heat. It's going to keep the fries crispy. Uh, it's going to have a little bit of an aesthetic kind of touch and feel to it when you open it. And I think that that's, I think that's here to stay, but that comes with a price. And I think it needs to be added. It has to be added on. It's man mandated if you want it. But, you know, you're a connoisseur in that regard. And I would be too. I just, I would say, yeah, two bucks easily because 
of wanting to keep the quality. If you're already in it for 30 bucks, what's two more to ensure that when you get it, wherever you're taking it, that it's still intact, right? Well, the little Thai restaurant here in Manzanita has been charging us a $2 takeout fee for a while. And then they hand you the thing and there's the tip line on there as well. So I've always thought, well, okay, all right, I have to figure this out at some point. Now, now we're all looking, you know, it's a pretty easy equation to say, okay, this 20% tip or whatever you want to leave, even more, is fair given the pandemic. However, those of us who are consumers aren't doing better than we were before. So it's harder. I'm just, I, I just factor in the fact that I'm not eating out as much. So I can, well, maybe, uh, you know, a, a tip for someone maybe, to give me a bagel. Is there any opportunity for the food service industry to have a couple little uh, invoice bylines on the receipts now where it says to go packaging, you know, labor, you know, it just kind of add a few things in there just to get it to pass through. So people, I mean, that's part of like people understanding because I think, I think the average consumer doesn't really know, you know, the details. So what if a restaurant came out and did that? I mean, you noticed it, right? They added $2 and you, you took note. That's a start, but I, I don't know how we get people to realize, you know, the, the whole the, all the add-ons that are going into the, the back of the house to do this. Right. But that, was, that was before all this started. That was, that was <laughs> when we were back in 2018. <laughs> oh, and, oh, I've never seen that before. A little to-go order package. Okay, great. Um, but at any rate, that's why I mention it. And um, my cheapness always shows up on this podcast, I think. Your cheapness. You're a tipper. <laughs> you're a t- I know you're a tipper. I know you're a tipper. Oh, I tipper. Tip fairly well, but I, I've always been, I, I have the Larry David syndrome. I don't know do you, if you watch, I think, <laughs> but you know, at the, you know, at the coffee shop or, or anywhere, when there's a tip jar, there's a scene with Larry David where the guy makes his coffee and he's handing it to him and he's got the, he's got the couple of bills that are going into the tip jar and he wants to make sure the guy's watching. Cause otherwise mm-hmm. what's the point if you're not going to get credit for being a decent tipper. So right. are you watching? I'm putting it in and then he <laughs> you're, just buy, you're just buying yourself a ticket for excellent service the next time. <laughs> exactly. Right? That's, That's what you're going to get out of it. You just want to get credit for being, a, a, you know, for being okay with it all. So. Hey, Chris, let's pause just a moment to talk about one of our favorite places to eat here in Portland, and that would be Ringside Steakhouse. Right now, you can enjoy it again, and I understand you went Sunday night, Court. I did, and you know what's interesting is, you know, I know know we live in Blazer Nation. I'm a, a Trailblazers fan when they're not playing the Utah Jazz, Chris. And as I was sitting there in in the uh, dining room with my family, I looked up on the wall and what did I see? None other than Utah Jazz's Carl Malone, the second most highest scoring NBA player of all time, wrote a little note. And I'm sure this goes back a few years, but uh, Carl Malone saying this is the best prime rib in Portland. Speaking of that. That's cool that you saw that. Yeah. But you can get their their uh, prime rib for takeout on Wednesday night, which is great. Um, it's a good deal. So just go to their website and pop that in and pick it up and enjoy that at home. Yeah, you can't really beat it. It's their three-course prime rib dinner every Wednesday night. And you can either go pick it up, but they're also uh, uh, making it available to go via DoorDash. So that's another way to have it delivered to your house. 
That is that. That's good for those people in Portland. That would be great. Yep. Also, another place to go is just go to ringsidesteakhouse.com uh, or to Open Table to uh, make a reservation inside or outside at Ringside. It's nice to finally get out, not only be able to dine outside, but be able to dine inside if you so please um, at Ringside. Yeah, and I know we've talked about this a lot, Chris. Nothing is better than the service that you get at Ringside Steakhouse. They they take care of you, and that was the case for me and my family Sunday night when we were there. But as you pointed out, Chris, the weather is turning. It's spring in the Pacific Northwest, and it's beautiful outside, so why not enjoy a little bit of outdoor dining? And you hit the nail on the head. You know, we've all missed our restaurants. We've missed certain things about them, but uh, you know, we've and many of us have enjoyed takeout food. But what I miss is service. And there is no better place uh, for service than Ringside Steakhouse. So to get back into the swing of dining out, I think Ringside is uh, not only a great start, but a great idea. That's right. And as you mentioned earlier, Open Table can get your reservations or just head on over to ringsidesteakhouse.com. Well, that the other tier that I mentioned uh, when we started our conversation uh, today was the, the people that have opened during this time period. I don't know if you've been over to uh, Las Punales on Belmont with David and Brian opened up this. Uh, they're doing the, the tacos where the meat is all braised, actually, um, inside of it. And they've done a great job. And that's just built for to-go type traffic. You know, and they've, they've had a great uh, start off run a, a little bit of a dip, you know, when the fires came and the smoke came and all that too. But it's interesting. There's uh, we've uh, worked with the Whiskey Barrel Lounge out in uh, Happy Valley. A guy named Russell Langstadt, who was in Portland for a long time, he went down to California. He came back to open that up with a woman named Amy Shannon, uh, who's the proprietor. I've been working with a guy out in um, Bombay Pizza and Curry, which is kind of interesting because you know, in my restaurant, I had a tandoori oven out huge tandoori oven non-bread fan he actually makes a non-bread pizza i've been waiting like decades for someone to make a non-bread pizza and it's called bombay pizza and curry out behind nike it's a guy named sunny pamar uh and they've you know they've they've had their moments he calls me every once in a while and says what's going on how come nobody's coming into this place but it's a pizza model uh and really kind of interesting chef over in sun river who's opening a new pizza place called the fold uh, with two women up from California on the front end of it, you know, and I thought, here's a guy just the pizza makes so much sense, you know, so that's that, that's just part of that downsizing uh, part of it. And is you that know, like New York pizza that's folded, that's delivered to you already folded? Is that I don't know? I think they're using that word in the artisan sense of handcrafted. Oh, that's okay. sense. yeah, because I saw their oven. I don't, he's just not talking about folding, although you know what? I should investigate that for you because guess where he's from? The same state you're from. Um, so maybe, maybe there is something going on there. You see, well, you, you wouldn't, you probably don't know offhand whether he's from the New Haven area because that's where people are that's particular about their pizza there. I think you and I may need to go over to Central Oregon and check that out. He just, oh, he opens actually uh, next week, I think. Uh, yeah, he worked, uh, he worked out of San Francisco. He worked out of Utah. He worked at a three-star Michelin in San Francisco. So he's a, he's a, he's an artisan in what he does. And as you know, you and I spoke the other day because down in your neighborhood there, the Arts Cape Deli uh, is going to build out from scratch over there in Arts Cape. A guy that I actually was a, a high school uh, mate back in the days when I went to Lincoln High School is going to build out 
uh, a deli there. But th- that was another one of those conversations where we've helped a little bit. I worked with him on the design and getting the kind of mechanical and engineering aspects correct for that build out is they added more seats outside. And this place isn't even built yet, but they're anticipating that we are going to be in this outside dining thing for quite some time. So he put in another, you know, 25, 30 seats. So that's a design response, you know, to COVID in a place that it hasn't even driven its first nail on the ground yet. Well, you're going to obviously see that because restaurants that are already open have been adapting with more outdoor seating. Whether they can do it for more than a few months or not, they're still working on that. And I would think Arch Cape is the perfect place for outdoor dining. I mean, look what Moe's has done in Tolavana. And uh, have you ever been to um, the schooner in Neatarts? They have the perfect outdoor situation over there. So, um, and it wasn't there a few years ago. They kind of anticipated this, but um, But I'm looking forward to that Arch Cape spot. I just wonder if that this is going to play into even how restaurants are laid out. If people taking consideration, creating the space, you know, for flexibility ahead of time. So like banquets are gone because nobody wants to fix themselves to set seating. You know, they want to keep the flexibility of it. Or even back to the point that is it a ghost kitchen, you know, half the day and then it's kind of a flexible dining room the other half of the day. I mean, because this does feed into the architects and the designers, too. They will have these conversations now when they build out new restaurants, like how do we respond to, you know, a potential pandemic or something of that nature. So we'll see it, I think, also in the design phase, which I, that's why I brought up the Arch Cape Deli, because I know that they were already talking about creating that flexibility for, for revenue. Because all these, you know, topics and, you know, functions and things we want to talk about are all driven by revenue. You know, it's got it's to make sense. Right. Well, and I think as you're speaking, I'm thinking, will we see more either shared kitchens or kind of kitchen, like a duplex restaurant, right? And where the seating is shared, much like Prost, right? So you go in and you're using uh, their seating space for a bunch of food carts there. You can take it in and eat it. Um, I think you're going to find there will be some interesting... Um, variations because people are going to have to be creative. We live in a creative city. You know, pop-ups, I I don't know. I didn't follow the whole nation, but there are a lot of pop-ups in Portland. And it was kind of, I think we were, the city was on the forefront of that whole pop-up movement. I could be a hundred percent wrong, but I didn't hear about them as much as I heard about them here. And that's a creative solution for someone who's trying to get started, right? Without having to go out and generate $500,000 to open their restaurant. Let me just try it a few nights a week, see how that works. Well, we definitely heard stories where that was used as a funding mechanism. So it gave you know investors the flavor of what they'd be doing. And I think it got people excited. So they were, they were good you know, showcase you know, for chefs and for operators to, to begin to uh, you know, seed the money. Uh, but I, but I think that's the other thing, you know, the people that invest in restaurants, if you're going to go up over a half million dollars or whatever, they're going to have different questions about their returns and the structure and the profit and loss statements and things like that about what it looks like, you know, post COVID. So I, I'm just kind of making the point that this is like a chain link fence, right? And there's so many different pieces that are all connected and everybody in every category, the architects, the designers, the financers, the operators, imagine what the county health 
it's going to be doing after this. I mean, I think the county health has given a little bit of leeway for people to do retail conversions or whatever it might be. But I, I wonder what that's going to look like, you know, post COVID too. So it's, it's, it's an, I mean, I want to put a, you know, a very positive spin on this, that uh, there are some opportunities here, but we can't really move forward with real positive, you know, kind of industry changing opportunities until we understand where the holes were and we begin to fill some of those uh, first before we move forward. Are you so glad? Or have you given it any thought? Have you laid in bed at night and thought, man, I'm glad I still don't have Wildwood in the middle of all you of know, <laughs> people, people say that to me. And I, you know, I just cherish that time period so much. But I think the question to somebody, you know, maybe as crazy as I might be is like, well, what would you do now? And it really is advanced into using like the technology, you know, whether it's the vacuum packing, you know, doing sous vide and that's a Multnomah County of Health or any County of Health issue in terms of like what temperatures you can actually preserve things in and then using more sophisticated ovens. I honestly think, and I'm going to get like blown out of your show for saying this, that the days of like fry laters and flat tops got to get behind us. They're just these mechanisms that use a ton of fat, use a ton of oil. They're inefficient. They're on all the time. I mean, what business is open for 12 hours and only makes money for four? I mean, <laughs> this is not a great equation for food. And it's not all food industry. I mean, some food industry runs very efficient and is, you know, it's contracted and it's fixed and all that, cafeterias and whatnot. But even those and buffet lines are pretty much, you know, part of the history pages now. But that's my point. Like, if I was to redo it, I would, I, I would be the guy doing a $17 basket of fried chicken. That'd be me. The guy who used to have the restaurant with the menu that changed every day that had a $50 check average. No, no, now I'm the $15 an hour guy. I got fried chicken. I make it one way. You don't like it. Get out. Right. You know, I just, I don't know. In some ways that's what it kind of comes down to because that service is what the, what, you know, consumers have made very clear what they want in some regards when it comes to eating quickly, eating proficiently, ordering it on my phone, you know, all those things that play into convenience, right. That's the, that's the key word there. Convenience. Convenience and consistency. Well, I also think that it it takes some of the creativity out of it because when you've got a restaurant, right, that's got a whole staff and, uh, you know, people coming in every day and you have to give them some, you feel like you need to give them something different to enjoy, that's not necessarily the case anymore. Now, as you said, it's what does this restaurant do well and what do I want to keep ordering from? Well, I think there? we... We've seen the science, you know, slowly but surely. I mean, I got to think back to who was the who was the first guy that was doing the science books. I think I have some here in my bookshelf, but you know, all the way up to like you know, SeriousEats.com and so forth. That we've seen the science push, 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 push closer and closer. And I think this generation of chefs now understand some of the food science, and that does take some of the margins out of it, some of the creativity out of it, you know, and that's why I use the fried, you know, the fried chicken example, <laughs> you know, where you just, you know, you do the sous vide and then you dry it and then you like just use ovens now that do, that you bake without oil. I mean, you get crispy skin without even using a stitch of oil. I mean, a, a 35 pounds of fryer oil costs $39. Who wants to change that, you know, twice a day? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, so I just think that, that, given the health factors in our country too that's going to play into it a little bit more i think you know 37 percent of the people in america is still, you know eat eat at the fast food restaurants almost every day and so that's a big part of our industry is that really the number 37 percent yeah day yeah i just read that as an actual fact in a, a new a book i'm reading called the perilous bounty 
so that that's big, right? That's big. So they 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 have efficiencies. Fast food has you know they've done pretty well during this time period because oh, they yeah. had all that. They had everything. The intricate aspects of the mechanical aspect of it, you know, the execution aspect of it was already built in. And somebody had just told me today on one of her calls that companies like McDonald's are actually just like shutting the dining rooms because there's way they figured out how to bring the traffic through the drive-ins. I mean, Burgerville. Mm-hmm here in Oregon and Washington has done really well over this time, you know, and really relied on making efficiencies through drive-through. And I just, I bring that up because that's an important part of the food service industry. You know, the people that do that well and service that, that sector, you know, they've got some of the science figured out, they got the efficiencies figured out. And so I think the, the fine dining part of it needs to take lessons from some of those aspects uh, and filter it into this experience that you and I do not want to go away. <laughs> Yeah, we want we want it to come back, please. <laughs> well, just I mean, just some just uh, some moderation, you know, to do something different. We're all getting a little um, cabin fever. We, we're all experiencing a little cabin fever, so it it's nice to go out. So it's not the same thing to drive somewhere or however people get to where they're going, pick it up, and then you know, I am back at home again. So uh, it for me, it's. It's nice to get out. So yeah, we, haven't uh, even, we, we haven't measured the impact yet, right? There's no way we can measure the impact on us at this point. It'll be interesting a year from now to look back and say, wow, that really did change me. <laughs> so, Well, I can tell you this. I think I'm spending, <laughs> I'm, I'm spending a lot less of my, the income that I don't have on dining out, right? I'm just not doing it as much. So... Uh, You're somebody who's connected your community, though, and I I think you and I both do that because we really want to support this lovely community that we're part of, you know, it's really important. Oh, yeah, no, I'm as supportive as I can be, and I'm glad I have this podcast so that I can support a lot of places I can't frequent, so, um, and give them an opportunity to to shout out a little bit about what they're doing, so... um, but no, you just mentioned we haven't really taken stock. That much I can tell you because, you know, I'm not spending as much dining out as I used to. And that happened when I actually moved out of Portland to the coast uh, seven years ago. Um, and it made all the experiences that I did have in Portland even that much more special. I have to tell you, it was getting ridiculous how much I was eating out and how much weight I gained. Well, I did it. So it was nice. It was nice to get a little healthier and then make each experience, which, you know, I get to, I got to do quite often until last March. Um, you know, a few times I could get into Portland a couple of times a week. There's, there's a, a number of visits to Baker and Spice, one of my favorite places that you mentioned, oh, which yeah, by the it. way, their whole wheat croissant, which is something I would never think that I would if you told me that, I'd say, no, that's right. I'll just have the butter croissant. Their whole wheat croissant was one of the best things ever. And that's been a, I believe, I don't speak for them all around, but every time I've been there, they don't have that any longer. That that went away on their smaller menu, but they have their Katie bun, which is still great and um, not not very good for someone like me who's trying to avoid sugar. But um, Well, the, the items that went away were the ones that sold the least. So unfortunately, that was probably an item that wasn't high on their production. That's because I didn't tell enough people. Because that's if more people is. ate it, they would have enjoyed it. But yeah. my point was definitely able to get back to Portland, you know, a couple of days a week for a few lunches and a few dinners and, 
and uh, haven't been able to do that as much. But I have, I have to say, some of the experiences I have had, I've enjoyed. You know, bringing home uh, Thomas Boyce's lasagna a few weeks ago was one of the best things yeah. ever. And I love story, yeah. And um, yeah, it's great. So, um, and, and the Thanksgiving we just had was really great too. And I didn't have to cook. Well, that's the other thing. When Jose Chesa says not much preparation, you've got to remember what that means to him and what that means to you. So uh, there were a few pots involved there. But the, you know what? There was something else that was kind of gratifying. I think you touched on it earlier. Is we, did a we, we prepared a certain percentage of that meal. So he started it. He set it on his way with directions. And then we did some searing and some heating up and combining. And it was, uh, was kind of nice that that's a little bit of a new model, right? Of finishing the meal at home. And the, the other thing to keep an eye on, which I'm sure you will, is that there's a lot of talent that's now been somewhat displaced out there. I mean, chefs and operators and line cooks. And, you know, I wonder how they'll transform. You know, some people will walk away from the industry. I mean, some people will linger and other opportunities will come up. But there's going to be an immense amount of talent available uh, on the street. And I'd be curious if people stay in the Portland area, you know, the Oregon area, or whether they move into bigger cities. Because I, I always thought about that. There's been a little bit of an exodus uh, of culinary and uh, front of the house type talent that, you know, that has been displaced. And what will happen to them, you know? Well, it's, it's like a tidal wave that came in for a few years and now it's going to go out. And who knows what's going to happen down the road. It's probably going to come in back again at some point. But um well, maybe maybe all those chefs will go out and be actresses and actors and things like that. Who knows, right? <laughs> yeah, or do like you know, leather stores did did his TV show too. So I don't know if right. many people are going to be able to do that. But um, you know, I I think one of the interesting things that's happened to Portland this year is I remember when when people would leave Portland, I used to think, well, why would they do that? Who would ever right. want to do that? Right. Now right. I don't ask that question. If someone wants to get out of Portland, <laughs> um, I'm understanding. I don't, you know, okay, where are they going? Where do they? Where? Where? What are they going to like better? That's my next question. And I don't mean that from a cynical standpoint. It's just I'm curious. Oh, where are you going? What did you discover? So um, I think. You know, it's been a really interesting year because we've seen a lot of that and a lot of people who just want to get out. I mean, do you think the downtown will come back? Do you think downtown will? That'll, that's going to be, you know, a government issue, you know, a city hall issue, I think, in terms of we're going to need some visionaries. And you know, we've had, I mean, the people that developed, you know, the Pearl District way back when and the South Water Front. And I think we're going to need those kind of visionaries to really you know, private money is going to have to fund it and drive it. There's going to have to be some de devoted interest in the real estate itself and the reemergence of it. And it's going to need a lot of support, um, you know, and, and, you know, I've watched it even as a kid here and then coming back, it's transformed in many ways, but I think this is going to be one of its biggest transformations, you know, to come back uh, in, in its own way. I mean, will it still be the Copenhagen of the North of, of the United States? I don't know. I mean, that that's the question to me. It's like, what kind of unique, uh, flavor, view, economic infrastructure, can we give it now to really stand out between our other West Coast uh, cities that, you know, are doing the same thing, trying to figure out what does it look like, you know, after COVID. So I, I'm excited for that, but I think that's going to be a long, a long haul, long haul. It's a, 
It's a real long haul. And we don't have the corporate infrastructure that Seattle has, for instance. We don't have the sports infrastructure, which I think, Paul, uh, you know, my impression is that it hasn't been given enough thought. I, I think there should be Major League Baseball here for the size city that it is. And not only because I like baseball, but because of what it does, is it presents Portland as a major league city. Those words mean something. And all that comes around to support it. Look at all the restaurants when the Blazers play at the Rose Garden, all the restaurants around there that do really well. And, uh, you know, I'm friends with Ethan Stoll up in Seattle, and he's always said, well, we, we've got so many, we've got a lot of expense accounts up in Seattle that don't exist in Portland to the same degree. I mean, there, there are some, but not what you have in Seattle, the Amazon, the Amazon well, and the Microsoft dollars up there are huge. Hopefully there's a, you know, that when that starts, there's a panel that uses the chefs and the operators to give feedback of what it really meant to operate, you know, really look hard at the dollars and then think about the potential and ways to kind of resurrect it. But I hope they talk to the people that were downtown and operating to get a real view on maybe what didn't work, you know, and trying any rebuilding we do, I hope it's done with perspective of, of where we've been, uh, what we've been through, especially in the last 10 months and like how we can take that forward. So hopefully, you know, there's, there's some diplomacy, uh, there's support and there's uh, minds that work together to recreate a model that can get Portland back to, to you know, to, to where it should be. I, I don't want to use where it was because I think Portland is an evolving town that has a great future. So I hope that the gastronomic aspect is a, is a huge part of it. Yeah. Well, it was. <laughs> it was. And we hope that it, I, I think obviously the opportunity exists for it still to be. Um, and, you know, it's not like every city isn't going through the same challenges. So, no, but the, the, the suburbs are loving it right now. Uh, <laughs> the restaurants that are out in the outlying areas, uh, their demographics are good. Uh, they're doing well. So they're, they're holding a little bit of a power stick right now uh, mm -hmm. in terms of what, what the draw is for restaurants to be uh, beyond the urban, you know, the direct urban area. I agree, you know, as someone who lived outside the inner core of Portland and, you know, in Portland and far southwest, um, I always thought that no one pays attention to me. They don't care. And then when traffic got really bad, it got even worse. So um, it was tougher. So I'm glad that some operators have paid a little more attention to, you know, Beaverton and Lake Oswego. You know, the folks in Lake Oswego, for the most part, don't really know there's a food scene in Portland. Some Very few do. Okay. Careful, you don't want to lose that zip code to your show. <laughs> no, but I'm just saying, no, my experience is when I talk to uh, a lot of people who are there, and you can mention, uh, for instance, you can mention Paley's Place. And many, I'm not saying all, but many people in Lake Oswego who have disposable income have never heard of, have never heard of a place like Paley's Place or the places that I would mention. And I do all the time. So I, my data is pretty, I think it's pretty uh, strong. So those I hope that, uh, I hope Kurt Huffman's group still ventures forward in Lake Oswego. I mean, they were, they were laying some groundwork to, to do some restaurants out there. And I hope that that can, you know, find a, you know, trailer to hitch itself to. And, and, and cause I think that was a very viable and very intelligent move on the group's uh, part, you know. Oh, it's, so. a, it's a great move. And if you take a look at, uh, bamboo sushi out there and salt straw mm -hmm. they have the same mm -hmm. lines salt straw has the same lines in lake oswego that they have everywhere else so anybody taking a look at that would take the cue and say okay there is opportunity and especially for 
someone who may not want to be downtown Portland until they figure out some of yeah. the problems that are there. Um, safer bet, definitely a safer bet. The suburbs and and I just, uh, you know, we hope to. I mean, we're already. I've already been talking with the Department of Sustainability and how to get you know food, uh, you know, operators at the table, you know, with the Department of Sustainability and looking at the business structure. So we want to be, you know, and I do that with my work at Cisco, uh, being being at the table and helping to kind of scribe and look at the, what the options might be. So. We'll see, but you're right. You know the suburbs. <laughs> that's that's a fun. I'm a. I, I live in Southeast Portland. I mean, I, I've I've been to the city, uh, both in my childhood here and early years, and then coming back. So part of it. But I love the state. You know, I love the state. So it's great. How do you feel about Southeast Portland uh, in 2020? It, you know, from a food and beverage standpoint. No, from a resident standpoint. Uh. I, it feels good to me. I mean, I mean, it, it, I have to honestly say I've felt just very uh, comfortable here, even in my isolation. I'm, I can see Mount Tabor out my window. You know, I just, I don't know. I love this town so much. You could probably put me anywhere and I would, I'd be happy, you know, but I, I, I think Southeast Portland, I just, again, it's hard to drive down the vision and think of all the restaurants that have to struggle with it. I mean, getting back to where I started our conversation, I just feel a lot of pain. Uh, for the operators but as far as like the infrastructure you know maybe the population that comes in over time we'll see these old guys like me up here i mean next thing i know i'll be in a wheelchair going down 60th avenue i don't know <laughs> <See>? <laughs> no no I, I, that's not next thing it's not the next, that's the next thing okay there are lots of next that. things before you get there but um we, we won't talk about that <laughs> yeah but but I, I guess I was just asking is it I've heard from a lot of people how frustrating it is to drive downtown and see what's going on there. And even before the pandemic, just the homelessness and the crime that was going on down there. Do you feel that in South? Or do you have any of those frustrations in Southeast Portland um, oh, you know, versus yeah. like five years ago, let's say? Uh, I don't know. It was three nights ago that Hawthorne got kind of rampaged and you know, you can see the impact on the local new seasons with all the, you know, the wood over the window frames and so on. I, it, it, it's, you feel it. Yeah. You feel somewhat invaded, you know, I don't know. I, I just, I feel in some ways Portland has been somewhat protected to a great extent in some ways, you know, I've, you know, living in Boston and San Francisco and Chicago myself during my early journey years, I I've seen, you know, just the muck and the, the smells and the dirt and the suburbs. So I guess I'm a little more used to like thinking, yeah, if we're going to get big and we're going to grow and the population is going to grow, these things are going to come along with it. It's just the, it's kind of the manifest of the urban landscape in the United States, you know? And so I, I'm a little more, I don't want to use the word jaded, although I could, <laughs> but I think I've just seen bigger cities and moved to bigger cities. And I felt that Portland was starting to begin to kind of uh, fringe in that direction. All right. so, well, I think it's I happening in a lot of places too. So it's yeah. not just here, yeah. but it feel, I think you used a good verb there. It does <laughs> feel like uh, being invaded a little bit. There's, it's a yeah. little invasive. So now, I, now, now, that I've, now that I've seen the full picture and I've seen your lifestyle down there on the coast and expressed to you how much I love being just up the coast from you when I get a chance to stay at my wife's family's house. Hey, I get it. I would take the Pacific Quiet. Don't tell anybody. Yeah, don't tell anybody. <laughs> what ocean was that? I forgot the name of it. I can't. <laughs> no, it's it's quieter. There's no doubt about it. But as I, uh, you know, those my friends who've been around for a long time, and even my kids, uh, 
you know, it's been a long road. I'm in my 60s. So I think I, I raised two kids myself. I, I think I deserve a little more of a calmer lifestyle. Um, and, I, and I've learned to appreciate it, put it that way. That doesn't mean that I don't enjoy my time in Portland when I'm there or bigger cities. I mean, I travel to, I do get to travel to Europe and go to bigger cities there. And after a while, it's a little claustrophobic for me. If I'm, if I'm over there for three weeks and big cities, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to not be around a lot of people. So. Well, I was glad I got to take a little peek in it. So I have a little bit of coastal envy. So. <laughs> Well, you have a yeah. You get to visit out here, so you're lucky. And I yeah. think a lot, most people need. I always feel like you need to budget a certain amount of time at the coast every year. If you live in Portland, you know I have people. I've heard people say I haven't been out in five years. And I'm, really, it's a, it's a whole hour and a half. You know, and to put that in perspective, you could watch you know an episode of one episode of television, and it's the amount of time above over that that it would take to make a you know, to warm some soup on the stove. So it's the hour and a half to get to the coast is not a big deal. If you're going to the North Coast, of course. Hey, but I'll, even I'll, I'll take that over the hour and a half with the therapist right there. I'll just sit by the ocean and take care of everything right there. Well, yeah. <laughs> or then you could do what I did when I first, I first started. Uh, I contacted a therapist a few years ago and I said, would you entertain coming out here and doing our sessions on the beach? Yeah. So I thought that would be kind of fun. But. <laughs> I never, I haven't, I haven't accomplished that yet, but we'll see. We're working on it's, it. Well, I just say there's, I'll, I'll finish with there's, there's hope. There's a lot of hope. I think. That, yeah, I think there's better. hope and there's all sorts of opportunities. And I have to say one of them um, to, to just, I guess, make this a little bit full circle. If you had told me 10 years ago that I would be, you know, living on the coast and friends with you and have the opportunity to chit chat with you and hang out. And I hope we get to go to Bend together. We'll have yeah. to rent a Hummer or something so we can be six feet apart. <laughs> but, um, or some, I don't know, or, or someone sit way in the back. Um, I'm just joking, but I have to say I'm, I'm humbled at the opportunity to spend time with you alone or on the podcast here. And I'm, I'm even more humbled and flattered that you listen. It's always good to hear because we don't have a ton of data on who's listening to the podcast, but if I know people like you are listening, it makes me, uh, it makes it all worthwhile. So. Yeah. My, well, my plug is I started off as I, I think this is, this is in industry uh, critical, you know, just to get a sense, especially for people coming in the industry, like how do these people think, how do they get there? How do they view it? You know, I think that their stories are very important because uh, there's similarities in how this stuff is connected. So it's, it's great. As I said last time, appreciate the uh, just the audio, you know, to have the voices out there and uh, we can listen. We appreciate it. Well, I, 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 as I said, I, I don't know very much. I was, you know, I'm, I was a solid guy at the Abbey, the Abbey restaurant in Norwalk, Connecticut. That's my only restaurant job ever when Nixon resigned, just to give you a little bit of a, uh, uh, perspective on that. So I don't really know that much. Uh, so I rely on our guests to bring the expertise and I do my best to not make a fool of myself while in the process. And I always hope to get through these so that, um, as I said earlier, it's sometimes hard to listen, but, um, I do my best to just let you, you shine. And I think, you know, it's easy for you to shine. You've shined in many, in many different ways in your lifetime and your career. 
Well, I'm going to find out if that guy over in Sun River, Sean Smith is his name, is from somewhere you know in Connecticut. And I'm going to get to the bottom of this folded pizza thing. And if it requires a trip over there, then you and I will make it. Uh, I'll drive the truck. You can sit in the back. And uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll sit anywhere. Let me bring my dogs. And we'll go, okay. oh, let's, we'll go and visit John and, and Renee Gorham, yes, too. That'll be, right. a, that'll be a fun trip. Um, right. But I'll tell you what, even a more fun trip would be go to Connecticut and do the pizza thing there. Yes, so, yes, have you ever done yes. that? Have you been to? Yes. Yes. I've been to Pepe. Yes. Yeah. So that that's cool. And, um, you know, I always, but I'll tell you what, the Portland food pizza scene grew so much that I stopped missing it so much in, uh, in Connecticut. So that's a compliment. That's a huge compliment. To yeah, no, I think it's done. It's done really well. And you can get a lot. Yeah. I can even get great pizza here. Did you ever go to Marzano's when you're out here in Manzanita? No, that'll, that'll be on my list. My next trip, I better make it very soon. Yeah, it's good. And if they start doing takeout, they had labor problems. They started doing takeout, closed their dining room about three years ago. So it's only takeout now. That roasted, that sausage and roasted onion pizza in the car, that's one of the best sensations you can have. <laughs> as, so, long as, as long as a year from now you don't tell me that the car experience was the best part of it, I think that we'll be okay. No, it's to close the windows and smell that roasted onion, man. It's really good. So we'll do that together sometime. All right. Maybe. Give me hope. All right. Thanks so much. I appreciate All it, right. Corey. Thank you, Chris. We'll talk okay. again. All right. Bye, everybody. All right. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right